This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Roberta Place in Barrie has become the hardest hit nursing home in Ontario during the second wave of COVID-19. Nearly every resident and staff member at Roberta Place has contracted the virus, with the UK variant also in the mix, leading to at least 50 deaths among residents and one essential caregiver. We learned this past week a long-term care inspector visited that nursing home on January 12th and 13th, days after the outbreak began, and concluded that the licensee had failed to ensure the home was a safe and secure environment for its residents. Some of the violations included having COVID-19 positive residents in the same room as residents who had not tested positive and staff members tending to residents with and without the virus. While filling in for Libby Snymer on Monday, I was joined by our Zoomer squad to discuss the growing tragedy. Peter Mugrich is senior editor at Zoomer magazine. David Kravitz is chief marketing officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. And Bill Van Gorder is acting chief policy officer at CARP, a new vision of aging. CARP has been talking about uh, the, the problems with the government ignoring the reports of inspectors. At first, they weren't even inspecting. Now they are. They're ignoring them. The excuse uh, that we were given was, well, the, the staff was so busy, they didn't have time to separate the residents so uh, so that they wouldn't become infected. Totally uh, inexcusable. David, this is exactly why CARP's campaign continues to gain momentum, stories like this one. Well, it's true, but what's even more disturbing is this. The Ontario government uh, posts every inspection report online. And it turns out, I'm, I'm looking at the Roberta Place reports right now, including the one you reported. They were in Roberta Place on July 16th, and again on September 16th, and again on December 21st, and only on December 21st did they even mention COVID. They were in there four previous inspections for incidents. Now, that's fair enough, a complaint, verbal abuse. I think one, there was another one about improper storage of medication. But all this underscores is what we've been saying all along. They had all summer long to go into every single home in the province and say, wave one is over, wave two is coming, what shape are you in, what are you doing to get ready? They were actually in Roberta Place four times before this disastrous inspection that you've just reported on. So what were they doing the whole time? And this explains why we think this minister has to go. They didn't do everything that they could have done to create this so-called iron ring around the nursing homes. They sat back and did nothing. Peter, what do you garner from that, that they that they didn't even make note, as David is, is saying there, in those four previous reports? Certainly those, those previous um, inspectors should be called on the carpet to explain their actions. Um, did, the, did the nursing home uh, 
management uh, cover up the truth? Did they, you know, like how, how come none of these things came out? I, I, I think that'll be an interesting outcome from this to, to see why the investigators are no doubt trained to look at things and, and pick things up, didn't pick things up because this is the worst outbreak of any nursing home ever, I think, isn't it? Like every... I think almost every all single two, resident. All but two residents are infected. Yeah. All right. but two residents are infected. Right. So, um, so this is the worst outbreak, and um, how was it not noticed? It, it, it's going to, it, it seems bewildering now, but, but I, I suppose down the road we'll have to ask these inspectors what they were thinking at the time. Peter, when you think about um, the pandemic, the one-year mark, you know, how has it changed you personally, and and how do you think it's changed society for the good and the bad? Well, a, a personal story. Uh, on on the weekend, I ran into an old friend I hadn't seen for years, and we were, I instinctively reached out to shake his hand, and he recoiled in horror, like "Don't touch me," you know. So, so that kind of. Uh, the, the social interaction is, is going to has changed immensely, and it's going to take a long time before we get back to sort of shaking hands and hugging and you know being close to people. Like like it, it, that for me, that's one of the biggest changes. It's just this this barrier we've put up around ourselves. Uh, is that ever going to come down again? David, your thoughts? Well, I think it's uh, made me very conscious of uh, what each individual must do to protect themselves and not relying on, quote-unquote, the system. We just have to be so much more vigilant ourselves all the time. That's number one. And number two, I think that the um, use of online uh, resources, both for shopping and information and even personal contact, is not going to uh, diminish. I think that's a permanent change uh, in the way we operate. David Kravitz, Chief Marketing Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. And Bill Van Gorder, Acting Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Monday's Fight Back Zoomer Squad. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. On Monday, we marked one year since the first confirmed case of COVID-19 in Canada, right here in Toronto at Sunnybrook Hospital. The man was 56 at the time and had just returned from China, where the virus was spreading quickly. He did recover, unlike nearly 20,000 Canadians who've died after contracting the virus. I was joined to discuss how our world has changed since January 25th of last year by Sanjay Khanna, futurist and macro trends expert, and Jack Jedwab, president of the Association for Canadian Studies. Well, it changed our lives in many ways. Uh, I think one of the principal things that we could identify that explains a number of other phenomena is the lack of mobility we've had. So the visits with family and friends that have been uh, reduced, if not in my home province, as a result of curfews we have here, uh, diminished in some cases altogether or uh, eliminated altogether. Uh, so in addition to that, uh, uh, travel has been diminished, if not altogether reduced. Uh, we're closing our borders. We've closed our land borders from the front. Uh, other people have tried to escape by air, and now we're uh, putting a stop to that, uh, other than for humanitarian reasons, which I actually think is a good thing to do. Uh, but again, all these things are uh, characteristic of more limited mobility, uh, not going to work or working out of our homes uh, more frequently. Another uh, important area where there's been very, very significant change, some of which I think will persist after the pandemic. Uh, 
but all these changes in our lifestyle, a lot of them, as I said, uh, uh, I could sort of find that common characteristic of limits on our movement and mobility that have, have been, I think, some of the big changes. It's interesting. My last panel, I asked them about what they missed the most. And, and Jack, ha- um, handshaking, hugging, that's what they're missing is that human touch. Yeah, I agree. And uh, that's come up in a number of our surveys, uh, particularly when I put in an open-ended question. So if I just ask people straight out what they miss the most without uh, offering them a series of potential responses, uh, it's contact with family and friends that they seem to uh, identify in pretty pretty readily. And then we get into the issue a bit more deeply, that whole human contact uh, is very important to people. And, and that changes the nature of our interaction, the very way we learn and the very way in which we engage people. And, and, and in fact, if I just might add, even the social distancing issue, uh, you know, I, I sometimes think that if uh, I were uh, an alien from another planet and I was taking overhead uh, sort of uh, photos or film of people uh, trying to get around each other, it would look as though humans just don't like to interact with each other, right? We're where we're constantly trying to circle around and keep the distance. So even things like that have a powerful impact, I would suggest, on our whole uh, uh, way of, of interacting and engaging with, with other people. Sanjay, what do you think about that, the, the future of social and human physical interactions once we're through all of this? It's going to come back. I think it's so built and tuned into us that um, there's a craving and, and hunger um, for for the interaction that um, both you and uh, Jack described as, as you know people sort of expressing that um, this is really really important and one of the greatest things they they miss and it's because of all the interconnections that also awakens within us when we have that close contact and that intimacy um, and uh, people express that differently but I think in this you know people will wonder about how to go about it the vaccinations will be a key piece of this. Um, you know, we still may have to wear masks and physically distance if after a vaccine, uh, it's still possible to transmit uh, the virus. But the more that's done, the more that sort of falls away, I think there's going to be a real uh, hunger for, for human contact that people will express socially. Sanjay, in the interest of time, I also want to ask you both about the future of travel, recreational travel. Uh, how do you see that rebounding? And of course, it will rebound once we get through the pandemic. Um, part of it is going to depend on how well the virus is controlled in various jurisdictions and in various places that, that people want to travel. Um, wherever there's the most control, you'll see, um, you know, sort of the, the, the people trying to gravitate towards those regions in order to, uh, to get that safe sort of travel experience. But it's not going to normalize for, um, for quite some time, uh, particularly the vaccine rollouts in many of the places that people want to go to for warm weather, whether it's Southeast Asia, um, uh, whether it's uh, countries in South America, um, whether it's Mexico, these are places that um, uh, have the virus completely out of control and where vaccination programs are going to be um, very, uh, they're going to stutter um, before uh, there's enough control of the virus in those areas. So I think it's going to, it's still going to be quite tough for uh, for travel. 
My conversation on Monday with Sanjay Khanna, futurist and macro trends expert, and Jack Jedwab, president of the Association for Canadian Studies. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine in Canada, anything but smooth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. This past week, Canada did not receive any COVID-19 vaccines from Pfizer. The situation, said to be caused by a retooling of Pfizer's plant in Belgium, is resulting in a lot of trouble for the Trudeau Liberals in Ottawa. In an emergency House of Commons debate this past week, opposition MPs accused the prime minister of not having a backup plan and of not being strong enough to demand Canada receive its promised timeline of vaccines. Justin Trudeau and his procurement minister, Anita Anand, continue to say Canada will receive all of the promised doses of the Pfizer vaccine by the end of March, despite the current hiccup. Meantime, here in Ontario, the Doug Ford PCs are facing criticism for rolling out the vaccine with an initial focus on healthcare workers rather than long-term care residents themselves, while COVID-19 runs rampant in hundreds of nursing homes. Libby Snymer spoke with our Tuesday strategy panel about all of the missteps to that point and where we go from here. She was joined by Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. I know Mr. Anand, Anita Anand, has been in this procurement phase since last summer, securing the contracts, proceeding to do what she had to do, even prior to the vaccine being available. And she did so with all of the providers and all the pharma big farming, uh, big pharma companies that were engaged in the process. So they did secure simultaneously, as did other countries, the need for the vaccines, and they all tried to get ahead of it. But you're right. I mean, notwithstanding what the prime minister has said, the EU is playing tough, and they've aided the procurement and the development of these vaccines, and they're telling their producers, you've done it at home, we want it first. And um, it's, it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, I'm sure in the end, we'll all have the vaccines, it's a matter of who's getting it first. It well, appears the EU is getting it first. We do have signed contracts. They exist. The, the, the deal is done. So the requirements for those producers to provide the vaccines to Canada now exists. It exists with other countries around the world. The fact that they're prioritizing certain countries over others, that's outside of the contract negotiation that Anita has put forward. Even at the very beginning, and I'll move it over to John, which shocked me here in Ontario, is that the the prescribed time for vaccinating 80-year-olds uh, and above in the community was something like April. John? Yeah, no, Libby, I think it's important to note that we all want, you know, the vaccines to be out here and, and everybody to be vaccinated as quick as possible and, and whatnot. But I think the challenge here, I think Canada was, was kind of sort of found flat-footed on this. I think it wasn't until 
the opposition, and, and not just the Conservatives, but others, were putting pressure on the Prime Minister to get, give us a bit of a timeline. You know, have you ordered vaccines? How many have you ordered? When are we going to get them? And if you recall, there was a time just before the holidays when you were hearing from four or five different ministers, all of whom were giving different timelines. Some were saying, oh, we expect everybody to be vaccinated by the summer. Others were saying, we're not, gonna, we're not sure we're going to get vaccines by March or April. So there was this confusion, I think, that sort of led to some of the problems. And I think what happened was the the pressure on the prime minister to get some doses before before year end um, caused him to, cu- to cut some deals with Pfizer and others. So we saw a very limited supply of vaccines that came to us. And, and thankfully it did. And, and thankfully some some long term care workers and, and, uh, and health care workers were getting vaccinated. But then, you know, then there was this confusion about, well, Pfizer is, is going to stop production. Oh, and by the way, Ted is affected by that. So it's causing this problem. And, and, and it was exacerbated as well. When, when the prime minister was pointing fingers and saying, well, it's the province's fault. They're not disseminating the, the vaccines fast enough. Uh, and well, then, and of course, weren't. the fingers turned on him and said, well, wait a second. If you gave us more, we would send out more. So there was this massive confusion. And I think this is a weak spot for the prime minister. Karen, at this point, and, and Charles very rightly pointed out, it looks like the EU is getting tough and they might, you know, even with the cutbacks, they might not let those things be exported. So what what's the point of an emergency debate, Karen? Having a debate, emergency debate on the vaccine is, is actually, from my perspective, too little too late. What we immediately need to shift to is how are we going to use these rapid tests? Because they have not been utilized in a way that has been strategically beneficial for any province, except maybe Nova Scotia, who's finally coming out to say, you know what, these are actually a good idea. And healthcare professionals don't need to do it. And so that's a discussion we need to pivot to. We are going to get the vaccine when we get the vaccine. It's been demonstrated that it's actually out of our control. As much as premiers and, and politicians and, and the prime minister wants to bellyache that we're in control of that, we're actually not. We've signed contracts, we've paid money, and now we're on a list. And we're going to get the vaccine when we get the vaccine. But we can't. But what we do know now is that waiting for the vaccine does not mean that that's when we're going to reopen or that's when we're going to get the kids back to school or that's when we're going to have safety and long-term care facilities or for hospital workers. So what do we do now? And that is the question. Everything else is a diversion. That is the question that needs to be answered. What are we going to do now? Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann-Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister, Fight Back's Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Tuesday, Libby welcomed John Tory for one of Fight Back's periodic check-ins with Toronto's mayor, The day before, Toronto's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Eileen Davila, called the increasingly devastating situation at Roberta House Long-Term Care Home in Barrie a wake-up call and that she had instructed the 10 City of Toronto-run nursing homes to double down on infection prevention measures. Libby began her conversation with the mayor, asking him about his concerns with long-term care. I guess I can speak more uh, with more confidence about the 10 uh, long-term care residences that we, the City of Toronto, own and operate. Uh, and I can just tell you with those, it has been the case uh, all the way through that we have tried to set a higher standard. We moved very early on in the pandemic, for example, to change the staffing model so that you did not have people you know, coming and going, uh, working in different uh, homes. And we did that by 
giving them more secure employment and, and paying them uh, more, paying them more in the context of guaranteeing them that kind of compensation. And so I can only say that with respect to the steps Dr. Davila has now requested, which is that everybody go back and re-examine everything they're doing in the context of disinfection and all those different things, that our homes uh, will be uh, doing that and will will achieve some results. The rest of the industry, I don't know. And I don't mean to be critical, but I think uh, history has just shown that, uh, you know, the city run or the non Nonprofit homes, generally speaking, seem to have a better record, perhaps because they're not trying to focus on making a profit at the same time of making these kinds of improvements and making them faster because they have some latitude to do that. With regards to the vaccine rollout, the general, uh, Rick Hillier, has come under fire because we were the last to pivot back and actually vaccinate residents. Uh, and he said, oh, we couldn't because of the Pfizer. But Uh, As it turns out, other provinces could. Do you have anything to say about that? No, because, you know, I think General Hillier has, uh, you know, Ontario is so big and the task of, uh, of, of inoculating all of the long-term care residents and staff in this province is so big that, you know, I, I don't want to be critical of what he's done. I think the real issue here is uh, supply or lack of supply. And that is something that is being rectified, but it's caused a hiccup to say the least. Um, and I would just say, look, as long as people understand what the responsibilities are here, the federal government supplies the vaccine, the province sets the rules as to who gets injected when and the cities uh, help to carry out that task by having, you know, clinics and this kind of thing. And uh, I, I will just say from the city standpoint, uh, we are ready. Uh, so when the supply is adequate, we're going to be able to roll out on a schedule that will be more set by the province. Uh, what clinics are needed, uh, they will be in places across the city that are accessible, and we will run them uh, well because that's the kind of thing we're good at. We have the, the experience from uh, flu vaccination clinics of being able to, you know, understand how this is done. And so we will uh, simply be ready to do our job when the time comes. You uh, and other uh, GTHA mayors have come out uh, asking the province for paid sick days. And this, as we've just learned, that the province is sitting on $6.4 billion of federal pandemic relief. What's your reaction to that? Well, my reaction is that I'm puzzled at the fact that neither of the governments have really stepped up and said we will take overall responsibility for this. I realize it may be in part a partnership between the two of them to look after these people. But if you think about it for a minute, it just isn't right that anybody who is working in our society here in Ontario or Toronto um, should be afraid to go and get tested because they're afraid of losing their paycheck. I mean, we have all kinds of programs, even when we're not in pandemic times, to sort of support people when they, uh, you know, when they fall ill or when they become unemployed. And in this case, it is the, it is a fact that there are people who uh, don't go and get tested, have symptoms, go to work with symptoms, and in fact, they are COVID positive and spread it to other people in their workplace. We're having lots of workplace uh, outbreaks. So to me, when, when all this needed is for the application process for a federal benefit to be simplified, for the benefit to flow to people faster so they're not expected to be without pay for two weeks, and for the amount maybe to be slightly increased, there are billions of dollars sitting somewhere. But it's not billions that are needed to look after this. We are talking about people during the pandemic who test positive, not millions of people who would be doing this for the next five years. So I just think it's um, very puzzling, to say the least, and it's actually very disappointing and frustrating that we haven't had one of these two governments step up and say, we're either going to take this responsibility on together or that one or the other of them will take it on. It's just not right, and it is contributing to the continued spread of this virus, frankly. Toronto Mayor John Tory in conversation with Libby Snymer on Tuesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. 
Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the fight back knockout call of the week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Barry in North York phoned about the stay-at-home order as he sees it. If we locked it down like we were supposed to, we did nothing that we didn't really have to do, in one month, we wouldn't be have it controlled. It would be gone. And so we wouldn't have to be dealing with these problems. So when we think, oh, should I go here? Should I go there? Should I do this? Even if you're just going to visit a friend, I don't visit anybody anymore. Um, even in my bubble, it's just not worth the, the chance. So think of that and we'd be a lot better off. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Helen in Toronto, a proactive advocate for her mother, who is a resident of long-term care. My mother is 98 in long-term care, and I spearheaded a campaign on my own because there are 20 in her unit, 12 were positive, They didn't get moved. My mother didn't get moved. And then two more from another floor became positive, and they moved them onto the same floor. My my project went all the way up to Doug Ford, whose office said, we're forwarding this to Marilee Fullerton. I put a closing date on my project, self-imposed, Wednesday the 13th of January, on the, and it hadn't come through. Now I've typed up the summary of my notes, and I'm sending it to... um, a few people who should know about it, who should do something, though I doubt that they will because it's just too plain, easy, and logical. I had suggested field hospitals way back then. And when you've got four in a room and nowhere to move them, that's the ideal, or so I think. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeeb Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.